0: How y'all doing? All right. Uh, welcome. My name is uh, Frank. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. Uh, primary uh, communicator. Last week, uh, Sean Myers uh, was filling in for me as he normally does when I'm not here, or just because, and he did a great job as usual. Um, and so uh, I was in Chicago uh, with um, my family. It was our oldest daughter's last home volleyball match of her college career, and they have a senior day, and they celebrate that and and all that, and so it was really exciting and really fun to be there. Um, It was was a little bittersweet, though, I'll tell you. It was fun to be there, but it was kind of emotional that it was the last time I'd get to see her play volleyball in a competitive uh, situation, but it was really great, and I really appreciate the fact that uh, I'm in a congregation that allows me to be able to do that and uh, uh, be with my family for things like that um, we are in Romans chapter 6 we've been there for this is our fifth week uh, we're spending a lot of time on Romans 6 and I'll explain why in just a minute but uh, if you could turn there that's where we'll be those four verses that Eugene read um, in the meantime I just want to bring you up to date with one thing that's going on in our congregation that you need to know about a little announcement um, <clears throat> Next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month. That means it's M25 Sunday. M25 stands for Matthew chapter 25, uh, where we're extraordinarily missional. And uh, the the offering next week that we're gonna be doing is gonna be for the Refugees Women's Health Clinic uh, at Maricopa County Community um, Medical Center and they're gonna be asking for diapers again. So it's another Diaper Sunday. I know we seem to be in a diaper rut, but that's because diapers are needed. So please bring diapers next week for the uh, Women's Health Clinic at the Maricopa County uh, Medical Center. That would be terrific if you could do that. Uh, We are in Romans chapter six. We're spending six weeks in that chapter, uh, which surprises a lot of people, I know, because uh, when you talk about the book of Romans, usually it's chapters 3, 8, and 12 that get all the press, and they should. Uh, but, but really, if, if you look closely, and the entire book of Romans is magnificent, but if you look closely, you realize why some scholars say that the, the heart and soul uh, of Romans could be traced back to chapter 6. It's an important chapter. Which is also interesting because many of the scholars will tell you that, that chapters 6 and 7 of Romans are actually a parenthetical insert that Paul gives us between chapters 5 and, chapters, and chapter 8 where Paul delineates and expounds on and proclaims the assurances that we have in the gospel in Jesus Christ. He just lays it out for us in chapter 5 and chapter 8 that we are assured of this salvation through Jesus Christ. That it is promised to us by the Creator God of this universe and He keeps all of His promises. And, and, then, and, and so what He does in chapter 6 and 7 is He kind of deals with all of the pushback that He might get because of these proclamations and these teachings. And, and so he, he gives us what's known as a diatribe. He sort of throws a question out there that He assumes somebody who's reading this letter might ask. And then he answers the question. And we're going to deal with another one of those questions this morning that you see in verse 15. But I want to give you just the big idea of these four verses, verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. Here's the big idea. And it's nothing that that, that you have never heard before, but we're going to continue to pound on this. Here's the idea. There is no such thing as absolute freedom from anyone or anything. If you're being told that you're going to have freedom in this life from everything and that that's how you're going to be fulfilled, you need to understand that's a lie. There is no such thing as freedom from everything and everyone. In fact, we are going to obey something. All of us will obey something. And we're going to spend the next couple of weeks really unpacking that and talking about that. Of course, the wonderful and ironic good news is is that to obey the gospel, to obey Christ, to obey righteousness? That's where genuine freedom actually resides the freedom to live in God. So, so we're going to be looking at that. Now, a common but understandable error about verses 15 through 23 in chapter 6 is that they're really just the same thing as verses 1 through 15 in chapter 6. That, that, that Paul is saying the same thing, just saying it differently in these two sections. Well, that's partially true, but in fact he's dealing with different issues primarily in, in verses 15 through 23. And that's why we're going to spend another two weeks On these nine verses because it's important enough to dig deeper into what he's saying they really are different for instance let's let's start with verse 15 and compare it to verse 1 a lot of people think they're saying the same thing they're asking the same question but they are not in verse 15 he says what then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace by no means Now, you look back up at verse 1 and people say, well, what's the difference between that and what he says in verse 1? Verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he says at the beginning of verse 2, By no means. He answers both questions the same way. But they are not the same question. The question in each of those verses is born completely out of a different motivation. In verse 1, the person who's asking that question is approaching sin in this logical, intellectual way that says, well, you told us in chapter 5 that, that, that the law increases sin, so the more we look at the law, the more we're going to sin, and the more we sin, the more grace abounds. That's what Paul says at the end of chapter 5. He says, if that's true, then why don't we just sin all the more so that grace might abound all the more? It's this way of rationalizing or justifying sin. It's recognizing that sin is bad, but it's putting this good spin on sin. In verse 15, it's a different question though. Here it's more simply, listen, sin doesn't matter if we're under grace instead of the law, right? I mean, the law, apparently you're saying Paul has been abolished, which Paul isn't saying that. But if the law doesn't matter anymore, then sin must not matter anymore. So it doesn't matter if we sin. So, so the argument here is just simply that sin doesn't matter. You're not trying to rationalize it or justify it. You're just saying it doesn't matter anymore. So Verse 1, there's a recognition that sin matters and we're trying to rationalize it. Verse 15, it's this idea that sin doesn't matter anyway, so we don't even have to talk about it, but we can still do it. And of course, Paul gives his same short answer to both questions. "Me genoito. That's the Greek. And literally, it's translated inconceivable. It's inconceivable if you really understand gospel, if you really understand grace, it's inconceivable that you would think that way about sin. It's not going to happen if you really understand uh, 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 grace. And 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 what he's saying here in verse 15 is sin does matter. We cannot get away from that. But there is a different answer to sin than the law. And I want to explain that to you. Most of us, if, if we want to live good moral lives of wonderful behavior, and that would include Christians, most of us will run to the law in order to define that. And hopefully, uh, find our salvation and our sanctification in that. And Paul is saying, that's not where you run. You are not under the law anymore in Christ. You are under grace. Sin still matters, but you don't run to the law to have your sin defined or understood or saved or sanctified. You need to run to Jesus. That's what he's saying. And then in those three verses that follow, verses 16, 17, and 18, if you just read those, and I'm going to read them in a second, there are two words in those those three verses that should just jump off the page at you and you should say those words must be important because they're repeated uh, a, a number of times. So he says in verse 15, do you not know that if you present your members to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So obviously, the two big words in that little passage there uh, are the words obey or obedience, same word in the Greek, And then the word slave and so we need to look at both of those but then also we need to look at the concept of freedom as well because you cannot bifurcate slavery from freedom those things just go together and in fact in verse 18 paul claims that we are now free from sin so there is this freedom aspect in in that as well so we'll discuss all three of these this morning but again let's start with verse 15 again it's just this idea that all of us, whether we're Christians or not, every person in this room uh, from, from here on out to all of you guys, all of us have toyed with this idea at one time or another that, 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 that maybe we can just go on sinning. We can rationalize it or justify it, frankly, because the deep down motivation is that we kind of want to. And so we're looking for a way to figure out how to rationalize it. And if we can just just rationalize it or explain it away or make it acceptable, then then everything's going to be fine. If you're if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ and you understand grace, the answer to that would be no. And deep down, we also know that as well. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book The Cost of Discipleship, deals with this. He calls that understanding of grace cheap grace, and he deals with it very directly. And and this, by the way, this is a great book. If you've never read The Cost of Discipleship, I would highly recommend it. The problem with The Cost of Discipleship, for me anyway, is that it's so deeply profound. It's not a difficult book to read, but it is so deeply profound that you kind of read a paragraph and you have to walk away for an hour to think about it. So it takes a long time to get through the book. But it's really good. Here's what he writes about this idea of cheap grace. Cheap grace is the grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner. In other words, just that idea that we're going to look for any way to justify our sin rather than the fact that I am justified in Christ and that's why I don't sin. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Here's what he's saying there. Cheap, a lot of us... A lot of us want forgiveness of sin that includes um, uh, the eradication of all consequences of sin. Again, if you're living in the real world, you know that doesn't happen. You can be forgiven of something, and yet there are still consequences of that. He's saying that cheap grace is the person that comes along and says, well, if I'm forgiven, then I should never have to suffer any of the consequences of my sin either. He says, no, that's not going to happen. Your life is still going to be changed by your sin. You're still going to walk a path towards destruction if you sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Now, I love that phrase. That is is pure, what what, what some people call the self-serving bias. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Have you ever noticed that you are far more graceful with yourself than you are with other people? And if you don't think that's true, you're just not being honest with yourself. But that's what Bonhoeffer is talking about here. We give ourselves grace that we would never, never give anybody else. And the funny thing is, is that Christ gives us more grace than we even give ourselves. But he says it's not cheap, it's costly. He goes on, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's absolution without accountability. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But, he says, genuine gospel grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. And it is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man The only true life. It's grace. It's true grace. It's costly grace because it costs Jesus His life in order to give us our lives. That's what makes it costly. But I'll tell you that the, uh, the beginning of that last paragraph where he talks about what genuine grace is, he says genuine grace, gospel grace, the grace of Jesus Christ, is costly because it calls us to follow. I am so glad Bonhoeffer points that out. And here's why. For the last 20 or so years, we have increasingly lived in in church world and in everywhere else in what I would call this hyper-obsessed leadership culture. Everybody wants to talk about leadership. Everybody wants to write a book about leadership. Everybody wants to lead a seminar on leadership. Everybody wants to go to a conference on leadership. Everybody has a blog about leadership and... If you're in the Twitter sphere, like I am, you realize that everybody tweets about leadership. That is, if you're not a politician, they tweet about other things. But everybody else is tweeting about leadership. It's leadership, 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 leadership. Because look at my leadership blog, look at my leadership book, come to this leadership. Everybody is all about leadership. But no one, it seems, no one wants to talk about what I think is even more important, which is following, or what I would call followership. I know this might shock some of you, but the number one requirement of a leader is to have followers. And if we're all leaders and no one is following, what's the point? We're all really good and really smart at leadership, but nobody knows how to follow. Which is ironic because it is the one thing that Jesus Christ calls us to do. Amen? He says, you're to follow me. Why don't we talk more about followership? Um, Bill Hybels, who is a great leader. Now, if you want to talk about a good leader, let's talk about Bill Hybels. He's a really good leader. He's also written a number of really good books. He's written more than 20 books. Many of them have been bestsellers, and his top selling books have all been about leadership. And if anybody has credibility to write about leadership, it is Bill Hybels. I was at a conference once where he was talking. It was probably a leadership conference, I know. But he was was one of the speakers there. And he started talking about this issue, and he said, you know, it's really ironic. Of all the books that I've written, by far, my least successful book, by far, it's not even close, my least successful book in terms of sales is a book called Descending Into Greatness. He said it was so unsuccessful, he said that I have 5,000 copies of that book sitting in my basement. That's how bad it sold. And he said, but the irony is that I'm pretty convinced it was the best book I ever wrote because it's a book about following. But he said the reason it didn't sell, he's convinced, is because of the title. Who in our culture, even in church world, where we're supposed to be humble, servants, following, even in church world, who wants to buy a book about how you're supposed to descend? That doesn't sell in today's... Imagine if Redemption Church had a conference on followership. I guarantee you we wouldn't have to hire extra employees to handle all the sign-ups for that conference. If we had a conference about leadership, though, everybody would show up, I guarantee you. Heibel says this is absolutely a problem. And he says it it, it feeds right into our, our issue with pride and humility. We're still stuck on pride because we all want to lead something. But the one virtue that is exalted in Scripture against this is humility. It's humility. And and Descending into Greatness is a book about humility because you can't be a follower if you're not humble. And it's the one thing Jesus calls us to do. And and I'm just interested in how in the church we even buy into this culture without testing it. You know, we're supposed to test the spirits. I, I really believe, and I know some of you just really start pounding i really believe that the church would be so much better off if we were obsessed as obsessed about following as we are about leading people i'm telling you if we would follow jesus i'm not saying that leadership is bad i'm not saying we don't need leaders and i'm not saying that we shouldn't know about leadership i'm just saying we need to know about followership as well and it needs to be jesus christ and that means obedience obedience See, I had to set this up because the minute I say the word obedience or obey, everybody's like, ooh. Even, even, even Bill Cosby in, in, in his comedy, he talks about how we just hate the word obey. We hate it. We hate the way it sounds. We hate what it means. And primarily, we hate the word because it challenges our authority. Wait a minute. I'm in charge here. I'm the ultimate authority in my life. What do you mean I have to obey? The only person I obey, the only thing I obey is me. And then the rest of my life is trying to figure out how to get everybody else to obey, me. That's the only way we like the word obedience. When it it talks about obeying obeying somebody else, we don't like it because it challenges our authority. But the point is we're going to obey something we don't have ultimate authority that is a fantasy we'll obey something it's not a matter of if it is a matter of what and we will choose to obey something the only thing we don't have a choice about is that we will obey something and so we need to choose correctly and paul tells us that what we obey the authority that we are willingly coming under will lead us into slavery Either to sin or slavery to righteousness, justification, and freedom in Christ. And I'll tell you what, this ties so well to what Sean said last week. I've been ruminating on this all week long. That one statement that Sean made last week where he said the best way to fight sin in your life is to pursue righteousness. Don't don't look at the law and worry about your behavior as defined by the law and worry about your sin. Look at what is righteous. Look at Jesus. Lean into Him. Pursue Him. And the sin will take care of itself. Become a slave to righteousness and you will be, by definition, free from sin. Now, because Paul puts obedience in the context of slavery, we need to talk about that. Paul's use of slavery... This idea, this image, this illustration in their culture was very powerful, but it's extraordinarily different than the way you and I think about slavery today in our context. It was way, way different. And I'm going to talk in terms of generalities here. Generally, all of this is true. I understand there are exceptions, but generally, all of this is true, and it's a big enough differentiation that we need to work our way through this. In the first century Roman Empire, slavery was just a normal, regular, accepted part of their economic system. And it was based more in choice than it was from our history, which was force. It was based more in choice than it was in force. Now, it's estimated that in first century Rome, in the Roman Empire, as many as a third of the population were classified as slaves. And and some people would even say, wow, that's a lot. We better be careful that they don't band together and rise up and rebel. And occasionally some of them would, but not necessarily for the reasons that you would think. Most of them would not rebel because they were slaves because, as I said, the slavery was different than the way we practiced it in the 18th and 19th centuries. Most slaves were, were slaves in the Roman Empire by choice. It was not necessarily a happy choice, but it was a choice nonetheless. It, it, it was a choice based on, uh, you know, well... I've gotten myself into this mess and I have this choice here which is really bad and I have this choice here which is just generally uncomfortable, I'm going to go with this choice. That's essentially what it was. The reason people chose to go into slavery was to take care of absolutely um, uh, 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 what's what's insurmountable debt and to protect their families and to keep their families together. That's why they would choose slavery. But here's the other thing, they were also able to earn their freedom. And the ironic thing is that the vast majority of slaves in the Roman Empire, when they would earn their freedom, they would choose to stay with their, quote, master because they liked it there. And they liked the money they made and it was able to keep their family together. So they would choose to stay with their master even after they were free to go. They would choose to stay employed by that same person. See, in, in, in the Roman system of slavery, the owners, quote, didn't own the person as property, but rather owned the rights to their labor. Eighteenth and nineteenth United States slavery, you actually owned the person is property. So please understand the distinction. The slavery Paul is speaking of is born much more out of choice than than force and when Paul says slavery he's talking about what we choose to submit to, what we choose to give authority to in our lives. So when Paul uses uh, the imagery of slavery for theology it makes a clear statement about the lure and power of sin and apart from Christ you and I are going to be slaves to sin. We will choose sin. Sin will have authority in our lives apart from Christ. And Paul's not the only one who says this, by the way. He's getting this, I think, right from Jesus in his teaching. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. I I think there's some selective memory issues going on there. But anyway, they go on to say, How is it that you say we will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Apart from Christ, we're going to choose sin and we're going to practice sin. And what's interesting, the, the Jews didn't like hearing this. They did not like hearing that they were enslaved to sin. Nobody who is mastered by something likes to hear that they're mastered by something. And it is argued by John Calvin among many others that the more you're enslaved to sin the more you're gonna argue that you're actually free in your sin. Here's how he said it 400 years ago. The greater mass of vices anyone is buried under the more fiercely and bombastically does he extol his freedom. The greater masses of, of vices that anyone is buried under, the more fiercely and bombastically does he or she extol their freedom. When I was first dating my wife Jackie, she was a Christian, I was not. When I, not even dating, when I was just first getting to know her. And she was sharing the gospel with me and telling me about Jesus. I will tell you, I was fierce and bombastic in my self-defense that I was free in my sin. That to, that to enter this grace, this gospel that she talked about was really the, things, the thing that was going to put me in shackles. And I was exactly what Calvin said there. I was fierce and bombastic in extolling the freedom that I had. And as I was raised, raised my hands, the chains of sin were just all over my arms. That's the truth about, about the authority of sin in our lives. And we just I was like everybody else. We hate it when it is pointed out that something has mastered us. I'm not mastered by anything. You're mastered by sin. And the truth is we will all obey something. And Paul's saying it might as well be Jesus. It might as well be righteousness because that's where genuine freedom lies because you've broken the shackles of your slavery to sin at that point. All of us have before us two masters and two enslavements. There is no middle ground. That's what Paul is getting at. Here's how Joshua writes it in Joshua 24 in the Old Testament. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your, fa- your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So we have to choose who we're going to be obedient to. Choose who we're going to be enslaved to. So how is it that we are enslaved? Verse 16 tells us, we present ourselves to that which we obey. We're enslaved by obeying something. That word present literally means to yield or to give control over to. So whatever we yield to, whatever we give control over to. And the word obey is a really interesting word. This might help you understand a little bit more what Paul is getting at here. The word obey is a conflation of two Greek words. Hupo, which means under. And akuo, from which we get the English word acoustic, which means listen. So, hupo, akuo, listen under. Whatever it is that we listen to, and then decide to give authority to in our lives, and then submit ourselves under to that which we are listening to, that's what we obey. Some of us in the past, I don't think so much anymore, but some of us in the past have listened under Oprah. Many of us today listen under a political party. We listen under a particular professor or author that we like. Whatever it is that we choose to listen under, that is what we will obey. And we need to understand that even though you don't hear it verbally, sin does speak to us. And when sin speaks to us, we listen. And if we listen under to sin, we will obey sin. And the reason that we listen under to sin is because with sin comes implied, implicit promises. Sin always promises us Fulfillment of life. Pleasure. Freedom. Joy. That's what sin promises us. God, however, promises promises us in Christ permanent, eternal, forever, life-giving, everlasting life. And joy now. And the promises of God are what can be believed, not sin. The promise of sin... I admit, does often deliver for a while, but ultimately what sin brings is death. I am reading right now, I'm just about finishing up with Malcolm Gladwell's latest book. He's one of my favorite authors. I I admit, I listen under Malcolm Gladwell occasionally, okay? In this book, he's talking about the struggle that most of us have with wealth. You understand that most of us can't really handle wealth. You understand that, right? I know some of you are like, well, give me a shot at it. Just give me a shot okay I'll prove to you that I can I I I, I want the opportunity okay but you, you know the you know the statistic you know, 75% of million dollar lottery winners are filing bankruptcy within three years you, you've heard all of that we, we 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 aren't very good at handling wealth it'll blow up our family most of us it'll blow up our families okay <laughs> here you go you hate to, we're better off struggling financially okay all right but it's true here's what he says about wealth the seeds of its own destruction are contained in wealth. That's the problem. The seeds of its own destruction. All of the consequential life junk that wealth brings, those are actually the seeds of its own destruction. That's why we struggle so much when we hit it big, when we hit it rich. Maybe it's not necessarily even us that struggle. Maybe it's our kids, but somewhere we struggle. Well, it is the exact same thing with sin. Sin promises life, promises joy, promises fulfillment, but the seeds of your destruction are sown in the very sin which you embrace to bring you life. And it's even part of God's wrath. I'll talk about this again in another couple of weeks, but we talked about this back in April in in Romans chapter 1 when we talked about how sin brings God's wrath. And there's two kinds of wrath that it brings. There's that end times eschatological wrath, You know, when Jesus comes again and the lightning bolts and the thunder and all that stuff and it's loud and it's hard. There's that wrath, but then there's also the wrath of you and I living in our sin. The consequences of our sin. The broken promises of our sin. The destruction of our lives, the destruction of our relationships, the destruction of our reputation, the destruction of our soul because we are sinning. That's a part of God's wrath too, but it's God's wrath that we bring on ourselves because we choose to obey sin. So how we are enslaved is is determined by what we listen under. By what we obey, uh, and it's it's very tricky and, dis- and and seductive. Let me just tell you this story as an illustration. Uh, Boy James Montgomery Boyce tells this story in one of his books. Uh, a number of years ago, a communist Chinese woman made it out of Hong Kong, uh, made it out of China, into Hong Kong, and was no longer living under the regime. Now, I'm using all their language, all their words. Okay. Now, this woman was a Christian woman. She became a Christian in China, was able to make it to Hong Kong. And when she got to Hong Kong, people discovered that this uh, Chinese um, communist woman who was a Christian had made it into Hong Kong. And so there were people who wanted to interview her and talk to her. And so she was interviewed by some, by some Christian journalists. And, and the journalists were, were kind of blown away by how often she referred to the liberation. The liberation. She talked about the liberation, which was when the communists took control of China in 1950. Now, the word liberation is, of course, another word for what? Freedom. It's not a trick question. Freedom. Okay? Freedom. We have come now. The liberation has come. You are now free. But again, the meanings of words can be changed, and that's a problem. So, The interviewers are asking her questions and they asked her, when you lived in China, were you free to gather with other Christians to worship? Here's her answer. Oh no. Since the liberation, no one was permitted to gather together for Christian services. So, the liberation brought freedom to abide by their rules. You see that? That's the law. Okay. You're going to see... You're going to see a theme of irony here. So then they asked her, but surely you were able to gather in small groups, right? We were not able to gather in small groups. Since the liberation, all such meetings were forbidden. So then they asked her this, well, you were free to read your Bible, right? She said, nope, not since the liberation. No one was allowed to read the Bible. She had bought the lie. She had bought the lie. Now, here's the question for you and me. It's a a tough question, and we need to deal with this. Are you a slave to sin but being told you're liberated to sin? Are you a slave to sin but you're being told, by sin or otherwise, that you're liberated to sin? That's the lie of sin. It tells you that it will give you liberation, but in fact, it brings you bondage. Understand that what we listen to and how we listen will determine our slavery and our freedom. So. Next question is, to what are we obedient? In Christ, we are obedient to righteousness. To that which is just. To that which is approved by God. Paul writes in verse 17, we are obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And that standard of teaching is grace. It is the gospel. It is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when he says the standard of teaching, the Greek in there literally means The form, or the paradigm, or the type, or the body of teaching. So here's what's interesting about this to me. In most of of his New Testament writings, Paul talks at at, at length about proclaiming the gospel. He, He is a proclaimer of the gospel. But here he's talking about teaching. And I would argue, and so would Paul, that you need both. You need both the proclamation of the gospel and the teaching of the gospel. Sunday mornings is, is, is the proclamation of the gospel. We're proclaiming the gospel on Sunday mornings primarily. The teaching of the gospel happens in your Wednesday night classes that we have here. It happens in your redemption communities. If you're not in a redemption community, you should get in one because you will be taught the gospel in your redemption community. And, and, and other Bible study opportunities that you might have. There's, um, uh, some of us go on Thursdays at noon to something called Priority Living of Arizona where Tom Schrader, who's the founding pastor of our Gilbert congregation, teaches the Bible. He teaches the Gospel. The point is, is that we need both. And here's why. Proclamation stirs the heart while teaching gives us sober application. Proclamation is the heat. Teaching is the light. And you don't want heat without light, and you don't want light without heat. You need to have them both. We need to have our hearts stirred, but then we need to have, it, ha- have a, a, an understanding of how to explain that, how to do that, how to walk that out in our lives, as Sean Myers might say. And that's where the true freedom resides, is in Christ, the teaching and the proclamation of Christ. Uh, Mounts writes this. Freedom is not the exercise of unlimited spontaneity. True freedom is to be set free from the bondage of unlimited spontaneity to live in a way that reflects the nature and character of God. In other words, as Paul says in in another one of his writings, the love of Christ compels us and constrains us. The love of Christ in our lives is what compels us and constrains us. It compels us towards righteousness and it constrains us from wickedness and evil. And the more we're compelled towards righteousness, the less we need to be restrained because righteousness in and of itself is the absence of wickedness and evil. One more question. We'll spend a couple minutes on this one. You see in verse 16 that sin is linked to death. That sin is linked to death. And the question is how? For instance, some people might ask this question. Does this mean that those of us who are in Christ can still die? No, the the death that Paul is talking about here is not necessarily ultimate separation from God. It can be to stay in the state of sin unredeemed by Jesus Christ is, is separation from God. It's spiritual death. But there's another kind of death that Paul is referring to here. It's the atrophy of the spiritual life of a Christian who sins. It's the slow, eroding atrophy of the spiritual life of the christian who sins the christian who is sinning becoming more and more frustrated becoming uh, more of a brooding kind of person living in darkness lack of joy engaging hiddenness putting distance between himself or herself and and God and, and the faith community. And, and come on, let's be honest. We have experienced this. Even those of us in Christ, we have experienced this. We're not obeying the right thing at that point. We're not pursuing and running towards righteousness. We're, we're in that old mindset that we're allowing sin to speak to us. And we're listening under sin. That's not what the Gospel is. And here's the thing about the Gospel. The Gospel is not an intellectual exercise. It's not just for your mind. The Gospel is not just an affective exercise. It's not just for your feelings or your passions. And the Gospel is not a behavioral exercise. It's not not just about your behavior. And, and, And here's what I mean by that. In the sciences, both the physical sciences and the social sciences, the way they like to explain how we as human beings engage the world is they say that we have a cognitive part of our brain, the cognitive system of our brain that processes information, facts, logic, and evidence. Aristotle called that the Logos. But then we also have another system in our brain that is the affective system. That's, that's, the, that's the system that processes our feelings and, and gives us our passions and gives us intuition. And, and, and makes us respondent to stories. Makes us responding, uh, respondent to persuasion. And then both of those things tend to lead to what they call an ethic. Your behavior, your identity, or how you walk out your life. But Christianity is not just an intellectual exercise. It's not just an emotional experience. It's not just behavior. It is none of these things, yet at the same time, it is all of these things at the same time. Because it is our life in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. You have newness of life in Christ. Your entire being has been redeemed and changed and transformed by Christ. We say it around here at Redemption. All of life is all for Jesus. And what he talks about in verse 17 is that we are obedient from the heart. Now it's really important to understand that when Paul uses, or any other New Testament writer uses the word heart there, He's not talking about heart the way we use it today. When we think of heart, we're really thinking about what moves us emotionally. We're thinking about this. What our passion is. What we feel about. But when Paul uses the word heart, especially here, he's talking about your entire being. He's talking about your soul. He's talking about your very existence, the essence of who you are, every part of who you are, your entire identity. So your obedience from the heart. And and, and one of the best ways that we've come up to try to illustrate this is, is this idea. You and I, you and I are going to obey and work for far more easily far more comprehensively and with greater joy that which we love rather than that which we see as labor you and I are gonna are gonna obey and work for far more easily far more comprehensively and far more joyfully that which we love than that which we see as labor let me give you the illustration of marriage more than 26 years ago I committed to marrying Jackie And and part of my commitment as a Christian husband is that I was going to submit to her, I was going to serve her, I was going to protect her, and I was going to love her, and that I was going to put her life in front of mine. That's what I'm called to do in Christ. Now, I know some of you right now are going, well, what's she called to do? It doesn't matter. We're talking about me, and that's the way you should look at it as well. We're just talking about you. You can't change how somebody else is behaving anyway, so don't even bother trying. Let's work on you. I'm working on me here. And, and I will labor to do those things because I'm in Christ and I'm called to do that by Christ. I read it in the book and I get that. But, but if I love Jackie, and I understand in marriage, those of you that are in marriage, you get this. Your feelings of love ebb and flow, right? Right? you can admit it she knows it guys all right those feelings ebb and flow but in Christ I'm called to do that but if I really do love her and I do love Jackie I find that it's easier and more comprehensive and more joyful for me to serve her and protect her and to give my life for her I would even describe it as fun yeah been married 26 years and it's been fun 24 years of fun No, all 26 all 26 years have been fun it's so much easier to do but then you say okay what about what if i don't feel that way because i know i know some of you don't feel that way i get it if you're in christ though this is what you're called to do paul calls it the mystery the mystery let me just unpack that for you a second because I've experienced this in my own marriage too. It's, it hasn't always been cupcakes and muffins for Jackie and me. We're just like the rest of you married people, okay? I look at Jackie sometimes and I think, you know, she's not very lovable right now. What does Paul say in Ephesians 5, 25? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave up his life for her. That's what I'm called to do. I'm guessing there are times when Jackie looks at me and she says, he's not very respectable. What does Paul say for wives to do in Ephesians chapter 5? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And then later on, in verse 33, he says you are to respect your husbands. Well, I respect him when he's respectable. No, 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 that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about when he isn't respectable. And he's not always respectable. Is he, ladies? Can I get an amen on that? That's when you're called to respect him. And here's the mystery. The more I've loved Jackie when she's not lovable, the more lovable she's become. And the more Jackie has respected me and submitted to me when I'm not respectable, when I'm not worthy of that submission, the more respectable I've become. And our marriage has worked exactly the way the Gospel says it's supposed to work. It's better now than it's ever been. It didn't start up here and go like this, which is what culture thinks marriage is all about. It started here and it's gone like this. And that's because of the power of the gospel, the power of Christ. Paul says in verse 32 of Ephesians 5, this is a mystery. And then he says, and I'm not talking about marriage, I'm talking about the gospel. That's what the gospel does in your marriages. And here's the beauty of this. This gets applied to everything else in our lives. It's not just about marriage. It gets applied to everything else in our lives. And I I think about what one author writes. And I know some of you are going, this is terribly legalistic. It's really not. Here's what one author writes. He says, look, in the gospel, we're supposed to do what's right because it's right until it feels right. Because the mystery of the gospel is that it will make it feel right eventually. Here's here's how uh, Rosaria Butterfield explains it in her book, um, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Rosaria Butterfield was was anti-Christian to the core. Uh, She was living a a lesbian life and the gospel got a hold of her and changed her life and she wrote a book about it and here's what she writes. When Christ first saved me, I did not stop feeling like a lesbian. I discovered it was after I first obeyed Him that my feelings followed and changed. That is obedience from the heart. That's what Paul is talking about. I'm going to pray and Sean is going to come and lead us in our time of response and reflection. And then we're going to sing a little bit as well. So let's do that. God, thank you again that you, uh, you lay it out for us in plain terms. You give, us, you give us an understanding of what obedience is and that we have two paths that we can take. And God, in Christ, you have given us the strength and the power to be able to obey righteousness. So God, we just pray that that would be what we do. We'll do it in the name of Christ, by his power, and give him all the glory.